Hello and welcome to Ear Read This, the podcast that swivels books around in your ear holes to wax lyrical about literature. My name's Ash and today I'll be talking about The Two Gentlemen of Verona, which is possibly William Shakespeare's first play. Possibly. I'll explore its exact place in the chronology of Shakespeare's other plays, as well as question why it has been so neglected and even trashed by some of his critics. In taking some of those critics on, and I can see them now steaming outside the studio, just a swamp of turtlenecks and crocs, we'll look at the merits and pitfalls of a psychological reading of Shakespeare's characters, argue with E.M.W. Tilliard, who said he didn't find any satiric elements in Shakespeare's comedies, and make a case for the two gentlemen being an early bromance, filled as it is with man-child antics, frat-boy bonding, and gross-out humour. And finally, we'll end on a bit of historical sleuthing. A podcaster will triumph where academics and historians have failed when he answers definitively whether or not this was Shakespeare's first play, and claim the big pot of gold from... I don't know, the TLS, or the Queen, or whoever does big pots of gold. Now, it's likely that even without ever reading or seeing a play like Romeo and Juliet or Macbeth, you probably could still sponge up the essentials and have a working knowledge of certain scenes, the premise, the ending maybe, a line or two. However... This is not the case with The Two Gentlemen of Verona. It's not a very popular play and it isn't very often performed, so it might be worth quickly frisking through the plot before we get started. So this is the first and last spoiler alert. As a general rule, if you can spoil a book by revealing plot details, it's probably a crap book. Truthfully, you can't really spoil a good book, um, unless you put it through the wash. The two gentlemen of the title are called Valentine and Proteus. They are young, bookish, aristocratic renaissance men, full of bounce and swing. In the womp and woof of their words you detect big hair and big trousers. Valentine is setting sail to Milan, which is odd because he's leaving from Verona, so no obvious need to go by sea, and we'll we'll come back to this. He scorns his friend Proteus for refusing to leave home, telling him home-keeping youth have ever homely wits, i.e. get out more you shut in. But poor forlorn Proteus is deeply in love with his home-sliced Julia, and so is not interested in going to see the wonders of the world abroad. Although again, if you're going to Milan from Verona, it's not really abroad. So no sooner has the play begun than Valentine is left for Milan, and we are left with one gentleman of Verona. However, Proteus's father, Antonio, has other ideas. It is fashionable for wealthy young men to go better themselves with travel in between their studies, do a gap year, as it were, but instead of building schools or riding elephants, romp through the cradle of the classical world and maybe cop off with a bit of French. Antonio says he has considered well his loss of time and how he cannot be a perfect man, not being tried and tutored in the world. So thinking all for the best, he packs Proteus off to Milan to catch up with his best pal Val and time. Meanwhile, Valentine, aptly named despite his earlier scorning of love, has fallen in love with Sylvia, who is the daughter of the Duke of Milan. When his friend arrives, Valentine makes the fatal error of describing Sylvia to Proteus and then introducing the two. Just to push it over the top, he goads Proteus into admitting how fit Sylvia is, saying, Call her divine. I will not flatter her, replies Proteus. Oh, flatter me, says Valentine, for love delights in praises. Well, it turns out Proteus is even more aptly named than Valentine, and couldn't be more aptly named if he was called 
Billy Turncoat Bastard. It takes all of 30 seconds for Proteus to fall in love with Sylvia too, and in a line probably cut out of most modern productions, immediately slanders his former love Julia as seeming in comparison a swarthy Ethiop. Proteus proceeds swiftly into full bastard and denounces Valentine to Sylvia's father, the Duke, who has Valentine exiled. Proteus then moves in on Sylvia, but she rejects his advances, funny that, and to make things worse for him, Julia arrives from Verona dressed as a page boy because it's Shakespeare and sees what a fickle bastard Proteus really is. Things come to a head when Sylvia elopes to find Valentine, Proteus and his new familiar looking page boy pursue, and they all end up in a forest because it's Shakespeare. Once in the forest, Proteus tries to rape Sylvia, Valentine appears and condemns him, Proteus apologises, and in the most controversial moment of the play, yes more than the actual attempted rape, Valentine immediately forgives him and offers Proteus all that was mine in Sylvia, I give to thee. Hearing this, the page boy faints, the gang realise it's actually Julia, Proteus repents and takes her back, everyone pairs off happily, and Valentine declares that they shall be married in one big ceremony, one feast, one house, one mutual happiness. Classic comedy. And if that seems mad, think about this. Presumably since they're such good friends, best friends even, Proteus and Valentine would be each other's best man. How about a hand for the bride, eh? Sylvia, you look irresistible tonight. Almost as irresistible as yesterday in that forest when I tried to rape you. If that sounds like a tasteless thing for me to say, you're in exactly the right kind of headspace. If a villainous character in a tragedy commits rape or an act of assault, we feel like it's being dealt with in the right key. The genre, we feel, can withstand the act. But here, in an otherwise light comedy, it is presented and dismissed as flippantly as a casual rape joke. And this is the point that has most frequently angered, baffled and embuggered Shakespeare's critics. So now it's time for me to let in that fuming queue of literary critics. God, they look rough. It is Monday morning and some have come all the way from the... Uh, from the 1700s. Samuel Johnson there. God, he's a big lad. What? No, no, nothing. It's nice he's come in his wig. There's Alexander Pope, another massive wig. Now, Pope, you said that aspects of this play of Shakespeare's could only be accounted for by, quote, the gross taste of the age he lived in. Tillyard, you really put the knife in. You called Proteus's treachery a, quote, wanton surprise and said of the ending that it has failed in dramatic intelligence. Quote, I doubt if such a failure can be matched in the rest of Shakespeare. Yikes. S. Asa Small, great name, by the way. You were understandably baffled by Valentine's offer of Sylvia to the man who has just tried to rape her and said, quote, The good taste found in the endings of Shakespeare's other comedies are not fulfilled in the ending of Two Gentlemen. Hence, the ending is not executed artistically. Lewis Theobald, hi Lewis, you were a bit more to the point. You called the play, quote, one of Shakespeare's worst. Isaac Asimov, where's he? Still playing with the printer? Ah, nah, leave him. Isaac deemed it the most forgettable of Shakespeare's early works. There you go, we didn't really need him for that, did we? You probably can't remember it anyway. In fact, you guys have crapped on the play so much over the years that some have even questioned whether or not it belongs to Shakespeare. And here we teeter dangerously into the territory of the authorship question, which could easily fill a podcast in its own right. But, in brief, you, Sir Arthur Quiller Couch, wow, name of the week, you found the play to be, quote, a piece of theatre botchwork, and posited the hypothesis that, quote, Shakespeare had another denouement which possibly proved ineffective on the stage, and the one we have is a stage adapter's substitute. Now that's interesting because that theory crops up a lot in discussions of discrepancies or alternative author theories. 
And you have supporters. You, John Upton, said the play, the play must seek for its parent elsewhere, which is the grandest way anyone has ever told a book that it's adopted. However, back to you, Big Sam Johnson. You were not willing to put the two gentlemen up for adoption, saying that the play contains the, quote, language and sentiments of Shakespeare. Great rebuke. I think we should call that um, Fat Sam's Grand Slam. But what are those sentiments and what is that language? Where can we see the hand of Shakespeare in the two gentlemen of Verona? Well, if I list a few plot points, what, what comes to mind? A love scene, a balcony, a friar and an exile. Or how about this? A cross-dressing heroine and a journey into a wood. Both are from The Two Gentlemen of Verona, or both pop up in The Two Gentlemen of Verona, yet those details are primarily associated with Romeo and Juliet and As You Like It. And those are just examples of stuff, plot pegs to hang the concerns of the play on. What about the concerns themselves? Ralph M. Sargent. You spotted in The Two Gentlemen of Verona a recurring Shakespeare interest in, quote, the psychology of the perfidious man who knows what to do, yet runs contrary to his own conscience, and in the process condemns himself. You point out the similarities between this and several other Shakespeare characters, and that could easily describe Macbeth, Hamlet, Angelo in Measure for Measure, Brutus. You said of this, Sergeant, that, quote, each man knows the code, the ideal which he is breaking, yet succumbs to the power of desire or impulse. And that is certainly the case with Proteus. Perhaps Proteus is in fact a prototype. Speaking of these motifs, you, Geoffrey Bullock, Bullock, Bullock? Am I pronouncing that right, Jeff? Bullock or Bullock? No, I can't hear you. You, Jeff, put it best that Two Gentlemen is, quote, a dramatic laboratory in which Shakespeare experimented with many of the ideas and devices which were to be his stock in trade and delight for years to come. Certainly seems to be the case, not just his interest in perfidious men, but the devices of gender swapping and transformations in a forest. Shakespeare is doing a few dry runs for later, more popular work. This surely is one reason why Two Gentlemen is thought little of, or called forgettable, because much of its plot was more memorably utilised later in Shakespeare's career. Then again, Elizabethan drama stole its source material from all over the shop. Shakespeare might have been the upstart crow, but they were all magpies of one sort or another. They nicked stuff from classical literature, contemporary novels, and from each other. This is one of the reasons the authorship question needs so much untangling. Shakespeare and his contemporaries had nothing like the ideals of intellectual property we have now. It was a wild west of riffing and response, in which they often did a take on a story their audience would already be familiar with. So all of these motifs could then be just some other 16th century playwright simply following dramatic fashion. Perhaps pointing them out is as daft as saying that uh, because two pantomimes both have a dame, they must be written by the same author. I told you, I hear John Upton gloat from the sofa, this piece of crap is adopted. Well, hold your horses there, John. No, Samuel Johnson, that was uncalled for. Put some ice on it, John. Sam, that's enough, okay? Enough. Yeah? It's a podcast, not a cockfight. Maybe in the language of the play we'll find more solid evidence of Shakespeare's presence. William Hazlitt, you have said that, quote, there is throughout the conduct of the fable a careless grace and felicity which marks it for his. His being Shakespeare's. And maybe I should quote a couple of examples. Here is one of my favourite Shakespeare speeches, a paean to living amongst nature, um, delivered by the exiled duke in As You Like It. Now, my co-mates and brothers in exile, 
Hath not old custom made this life more sweet than that of painted pomp? Are not these woods more free from peril than the envious court? Here feel we not the penalty of Adam, the season's difference as the icy fang and churlish chiding of the winter's wind, which when it bites and blows upon my body, even till I shrink with cold, I smile and say, this is no flattery. These are counsellors that feelingly persuade me what I am. Sweet are the uses of adversity, which, like the toad, ugly and venomous, wears yet a precious jewel in his head. And this, our life, exempt from public haunt, finds tongues in trees, books in the running brooks, sermons in stones, and good in everything. I would not change it. Now here's Valentine, also exiled to life in a, in a, in a forest. How use doth breed a habit in a man, this shadowy desert, unfrequented woods, I better brook than flourishing peopled towns. Here can I sit alone, unseen of any, and to the nightingale's complaining notes, tune my distresses and record my woes. O thou that dost inhabit in my breast, leave not the mansion so long tenantless, lest, growing ruinous, the building fall, and leave no memory of what it was. Both are former and fallen men of court, cherishing a delight and wonder in the natural world, an example of what many have called Shakespeare's sweetness. Yeah, I see you critics smirking there. What, don't think much of my reciting? Well, piss off. Yeah, I, d I don't want to get all Star Trek, but I'm, I'm a podcaster, not an actor, so you can all just do one, all right? Do one. Here's a shorter example from the comic side of Shakespeare's writing. This is Lorne's, one of the clouds in the two gentlemen of... The clouds? I meant clowns in the two gentlemen of Verona, chiding his dog for being emotionless. My mother weeping, my father wailing, my sister crying, our maid howling, our cat wringing her hands, and all our house in a great perplexity. Yet did not this cruel-hearted cur shed one tear? And now here's Peter, the clown in Romeo and Juliet. Madam, the guests are come, supper served up, you called, my young lady asked for, the nurse cursed in the pantry, and everything in extremity. I must hence to wait. I beseech you, follow straight. I think Lawrence had two accents there, and um, Peter was sort of, had one toe in Cockney. There are, in fact, two clowns in The Two Gentlemen of Verona, and I haven't mentioned either of them uh, in relation to the plot, because, frankly, they don't influence the plot so much as comment upon it. Um, but Lawrence will, well, he will prove particularly useful uh, later on when I um, do my detective work on when this play was first written and performed. The apparent satellite nature of the clowns is one of the many dramatic errors that Shakespeare seems to have made in composing The Two Gentlemen of Verona. There are discrepancies in setting, plot and motive. Since you've calmed down, Samuel Johnson, I'll mention your theory on this. Quote... The reason of all this confusion seems to be that he took his story from a novel which he sometimes followed and sometimes forsook, sometimes remembered and sometimes forgot. This novel, then. Shakespeare drew on a number of sources, true to that magpie mindset of his era. The primary source is a series of pastoral novels called The Diana, written by Portuguese author Montemayor. I'm not pronouncing that right. This sequence contained the story of Philismina, the shepherdess, in which the titular Philismina cross-dresses as a page to pursue Felis, her erring lover. 
this was riffed on by Philip Sidney for the, his Arcadia, published posthumously in 1590, and the story was in wide circulation. It had a happy ending with no controversial attempted rape at the end. Yet writers say, in the sweetest bud, the eating canker dwells, and new critics have said, to paraphrase Proteus, that you can't believe with an example of such sweet source material Shakespeare could have written something as repugnant as he did in The Two Gentlemen. So what do we make of this revulsion, and what is it worth to us as readers? Well, the measure of your revulsion depends on how you read the play. Many critics have taken a psychological reading of Shakespeare's characters and held them not just to the social values of their own time, but to expectations you might hold real people to. You, George Eliot, wow, glad you could make it, huge fan. It was turning into a bit of a sausage fest in here too. Um, I see Big Sam's eyes light up, that's not what sausage fest means, check your dictionary. George Eliot, you, for example, on rereading the ending of The Two Gentlemen of Verona, said that Valentine disgusted you more than ever. Sounds pretty personal. Arthur Quiller Couch, he's nodded off, never mind. He said that one's impulse on reading the scene was to remark that, quote, there are, by this time, no gentlemen in Verona. Thomas Hammer, there's a name you can count on. You thought it was impossible that Valentine could act so out of character. Now, this all sounds like people discussing someone they actually know, not a character. While I wouldn't write off a psychological reading of Shakespeare's characters, it has its limits. The objective isn't always psychological truth. In this play, for instance, the objective seems to often be having a laugh. Characters aren't people. They're representations of people. Sometimes they're little more than activated scenery. If you ever hear a writer say, my characters come to me and tell me what to write, run a mile or call an exorcist. In hearing that E.M. Forster did this, Vladimir Nabokov responded with horror, my characters are like galley slaves, they tremble as I walk by. People have called this uh, monstrously arrogant and it has the tone of bombast and vaingloriousness. Nuss, nuss, vaingloriousness, nuss, vaingloriousness. But think about what he's actually saying. Nabokov isn't calling himself an actual slave owner. He's merely saying that he is the marshal of his own imagination, as we all are. And it's, this is the most humble of brags. The other point of view, the Ian Forster point of view, is both wildly self-glorifying and mock-humble. I am godlike in that I actually create life, but then once I have, I am dictated by the life I create. This is pretty stupid stuff. The imagination is mysterious, and writing is, as Norman Mailer called it, the spooky art. So none of this is to say that a writer who says their characters talk to them won't write something brilliant, but their own capacity for development of craft is hindered by the fact that they regard their own imagination as an external supernatural force they can't influence or manipulate. I make this rather long segue to point out that even disregarding social differences from different uh, time periods, in our case Elizabethan and our own, isn't enough if you hold characters to the standards of behaviour you'd expect from people you know. In doing this, you severely limit the range of drama and especially comedy you can see and enjoy. I'm inclined to agree with Inga Steena Eubank. Wow, sorry Sir Arthur, this, this is now name of the week. He doesn't give a shit, he's asleep. Um, who suggests Shakespeare was less interested in the truth to human feeling than he was to wringing the last drop of silliness out of Valentine's conventions. This is the best explanation for Valentine's behaviour in offering Sylvia to Proteus, and in Eubank's words, it, quote, does not involve us or Shakespeare very deeply. This seems completely true, and the whole work is full of exuberance and experimentation. And errors. I mentioned before that The Two Gentlemen of Verona is full of errors. 
Already we've seen that people travel to Milan from Verona, which makes as much sense as skiing to London from Norfolk. Once we're in Milan, the Duke refers to the lady he's supposedly wooing as living in Verona here. He also is sometimes described as a Duke and sometimes as an Emperor. Julia appears to have a father one minute and then not the next. Proteus falls in love with Sylvia the second he meets her, but later she recounts of the many times he has told her of how in love he is with Julia, which seems a bit weird. The name Sir Eglamour is used for two different people. Surely there can't be that many Sir Eglamours. H.B. Charlton, you point out that, quote, Lawrence has no real right within the play, except that gentlemen must have servants and Elizabethan audiences must have clowns. While Harold F. Brooks argues with you, take it outside, fellas, first warning, that, quote, this is to see the dramatic structure too exclusively in terms of plot. Ingestina Eubank, you say that the real inconsistency is, quote, that Shakespeare is trying to use as his raw material what characters say, attitudes, rather than what they are, people. So what attitudes is Shakespeare using or lampooning? To answer that, we need to look a little bit more at his source material. We've seen already that the romantic love plot of the two gentlemen of Verona was derived in part from Montemayor's Diana. Again, sorry for mispronunciation. But there is another strand to this story, the part that makes it something of a bromance. Sam Johnson's cringing at that coinage. The theme of masculine friendship. Ralph M. Sargent, emphasising this theme and suggesting Sir Thomas Eliot's The Governor as its progenitor, says, quote, a second major literary source for the two gentlemen presenting this friendship theme in action has long been conjectured. It is now suggested that we simply look at the chapter in The Governor following that on friendship, namely Book 2, Chapter 7, entitled The Wonderful History of Titus and Gizippus. Gizippus? Gizippus sounds wrong. Gizippus. There follows the tale of an ideal friendship between two aristocratic students in Athens, one Greek, one Roman. Gizippus, 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 the Greek becomes engaged. He makes the mistake of extolling his fiancée to his friend Titus and then introducing her to him. Sound familiar? Titus falls deeply in love with his friend's fiancée. Yep. Inner turmoil results for Titus. Finally, upon learning of the situation and the struggle within Titus, Gizippus, in a supreme gesture, offers his fiancée to his friend. And the offer is made in almost exact same terms in which Shakespeare's Valentine uses to make a similar gesture to Proteus. That's not so much riffing a plot than, um, you know, just stealing it. But that's how a novel deals with it, inner turmoil. But inner turmoil doesn't really cut it on stage, so we get action, and in this case, attempted assault. This book of Sir Thomas Eliot's crested a wave of English humanism that drew on secular classical texts for its theories and stories. This fused with a contemporary vogue for Italian art and fashion in England that had built up during the mid-1500s. There was a boom of Italian books in translation, Italian dictionaries, and English books and plays featuring Italian stories and settings. One of Shakespeare's friends, John Florio, was an Italian who translated Montaigne into English. Shakespeare himself had already flirted with the vogue for all things Italian with his use of Petrarchan conventions in his sonnets. This vogue reached a peak in the 1580s, according to Thomas A. Parry, and by the time of Two Gentlemen of Verona, a reaction had set in. Quote, aggravated by the execution of Mary Stuart and the defeat of the Armada. These two events, instead of quieting, intensified English fears. The next decade was a period of strong nationalist feeling, marked by hatred of everything foreign. Spaniard, Italian and Papist were often synonymous, a fact that is not surprising, since much of Italy was politically under the Spanish king, and thousands of Italians served in the Spanish army. 
So perhaps Shakespeare was mocking his two Italian protagonists. Here is Valentine as the Italian Renaissance man he is at the start of the play. To be in love, where scorn is bought with groans, coy looks with heart-sore sighs, one fading moment's mirth with twenty watchful, weary, tedious nights. If haply won, perhaps a hapless gain. If lost, why then a grievous labour won. However, but a folly bought with wit, or else a wit by folly vanquished. Ralph M. Sargent, still with us, Ralph. You say that in the course of the medieval period, the theme of romantic love accepted and absorbed the conventions of courtly love and chivalric code. Is it chivalric or chivalric? Anyone? What are you literary critics for if you can't tell me if it's chivalric or chivalric? I'm going to go with chivalric. Chivalric sounds like a French horse called Rick. Italian and Renaissance literature in Shakespeare's day exalted precisely this kind of code. A 16th century rending of Bros Before Hose, an English Elizabethan drama, is full of examples that masculine friendship is as strong or stronger than romantic love. This is certainly what Valentine is getting at in that quote. And not just drama, as Ralph again points out, saying, quote, This love-friendship conflict became, in Elizabethan comedy, almost as popular as did the revenge theme in tragedy. It's this clash between masculine friendship and romantic love that takes us to the controversial ending, best summed up perhaps by Proteus at the height of his betrayal, in love who respects friend. Shakespeare, unsurprisingly, indicates romantic love is the stronger force, even though its victory is somewhat muffled. But surely it's the victory of love that surfaces in Proteus's immediate remorse and renewed love of Julia at the turnaround at the end of the play. We take it as a sour ending, but seen from the perspective of love conquering all... It seems the abruptness is merely matter-of-fact. What Shakespeare is lampooning, then, is two men who get wrapped up in the fashion and foibles of becoming gentlemen, and in the process, end up behaving foolishly and and get treated like scum. One exiled for supposed philandering, and the other becoming a degenerate who resorts to force when his words fail him. Camille Wells slights points out that, quote, this breakdown in civilised manners extends even to Launce's dog, Crab, who thrusts himself into the company of three or four gentlemen-like dogs under the Duke's table and there disgraces himself. The mastery of words, the bookish strengths of the two gentlemen, made evident by their many letters, more letters than any other Shakespeare comedy, and references to sonnets and songs, are revealed then to be merely affectation. Proteus shows he can praise and dispraise to equal effect, proving that his love-wounded sighs may not actually come from love at all. Even Valentine shows evidence of cynicism, when in the process of wooing Sylvia, he also says this of wooing in general, sounding like some lad explaining his pickup technique. If she do frown, tis not in hate of you, but rather to beget more love in you. If she do chide, tis not to have you gone, for why, the fools are mad if left alone. Take no repulse, whatever she doth say, forget ye gone, she doth not mean, away. That man that hath a tongue, I say, is no man, if with his tongue he cannot win a woman. Frederick Kiefer says, quote, If verbal fluency can be perverted, if a man's word is not his bond, and if there is no necessary connection between eloquence of expression and nobility of feeling, then what significance can a profession of love have? It may be artful and clever, affecting and even compelling, without being true. There are several moments in this play where the female characters have no voice. Most notoriously, Sylvia, upon hearing Valentine offer her up to her would-be rapist, she also woos Valentine with a letter he wrote himself, not her own. But again, seen from a point of view in which romantic love is a kind of cosmic force, an element that transcends words, silence is maybe more powerful. As Proteus says to Julia as he leaves her to go to um, Milan, what, gone without a word, 
I, so true love should do, it cannot speak, for truth hath better deeds than words to grace it. When Valentine's words fail, he flees. When Proteus's words fail, he turns to brutality. Here the faddishness of courtly manners is laid bare. And yet, another yet, this is still comedy, and Shakespeare remains sympathetic to all of his lead characters. They are forgiven, and all ends well. Shakespeare wanted to ridicule the bookish learned behaviour code of Renaissance courts and mock the mannerisms that couldn't contain true feeling. At the same time, he cherished bookishness and strove to put true feelings into words of his own. He also frequently appeared to be trendily secular in his thinking. Perhaps this led to a sense of imbalance at the play's conclusion. It's a play that mocks Renaissance men, written by one of them. In one play, Shakespeare has tried to have it both ways. He's aimed high and low, at profundity and spoof. For practical purposes, he has written a routine play with familiar plot devices, a delight for the unlettered masses. But he's also tried to thoughtfully hijack that formula by observing what John Arthos called, quote, the alternations love and unfaithfulness have made in these young nobles. When a dramatic convention has been subverted, it's difficult to distinguish between what is being mocked and what has been truly felt. Frederick Kiefer says the two gentlemen's romantic advances could, quote, leave the recipient wondering where convention leaves off and genuine feeling begins. I think you could apply this to the whole play, and it's not hard to think of modern-day parallels. How many parody films have you seen that take the piss but do so in a way that's loving? And yeah, Tilliard, I can see you trying to creep out. Come back here. Right at the top of the podcast, I said you found no satiric elements in Shakespeare's comedies, and yet this one, this one's entire premise is satirical. The evidence is there throughout, from Julia's oblivious declaration that Proteus's oaths are oracles, we know different, she does not, to Valentine's undoing by the Duke, who tricks him simply and then humiliates him by reading out his doggerel verse. Now, if this wasn't intended as satire, there isn't a chance in hell the lead romantic hero's own love poems would be revealed as trash. This crap poem of Valentine's is a key bit of evidence in proving that this is satire, as it, as it clearly shows a supremely gifted poet, Shakespeare, writing bad verse on purpose, something he also does uh, later in As You Like It. I think this would be plain to anyone, even if they've never read another word of Shakespeare outside this play, because there are moments of lyrical beauty in Two Gentlemen of Verona. Don't pull faces, Upton, it's true. Ask him, Albanon Charles Swinburne. What a, na- what a week for names. You said there is, quote, an even sweetness, a simple equality of grace in thought and language which keeps the whole poem in tune, written as it is in a subdued key of unambitious harmony. For evidence of this, here's Julia, reprimanding herself for ripping up one of Proteus's love letters. O oh, hateful hands to tear such loving words, injurious wasps to feed on such sweet honey, and kill the bees that yield it with your stings. Even you, Tilliard, admit that, quote, Shakespeare's new venture required a new kind of verse, and that the mark of this new verse is a self-conscious creation of verbal music, whether by repetitions of the same word or an extreme range in vowel sounds. And this exuberance in the play's lyricism is matched by that in the play's comedy. Its clowns, so often the weakest part of Shakespeare's plays, are here among the best loved. Launce, who is accompanied on stage by his beloved dog Crab, is a particular favourite, even when the rest of the play is not very popular. There are some theatre reviews for the two gentlemen that read like Mongrel is star at Stratford and Poor play and a good dog. Some lines in particular shine through in Speed's words like water in a urinal. There's a scene where Speed is lifting a, um, a series of defects in Launce's wife and Launce is arguing the toss. 
Speed says, item, she has no teeth. And Lawrence replies, I care not for that neither, because I love crusts. But it is often a scrappy play, bearing all the marks of a fledgling playwright whose poetic gifts were far more advanced than his stagecraft. This is often the case with the first or early work of young great artists. They ooze talent but lack technique. And this is a talent play. Every other work of Shakespeare's shows much more technique. Um, Comedy of Errors, which is also argued as possibly his first play, shows um, incredibly complicated technique in terms of staging. Two sets of twins, complicated entrances and exits, and so on. Two Gentlemen of Verona is lacking in this stage technique. Um, Inga uh, Stina Eubank says, Shakespeare has obviously had difficulties in translating the I and the thou, and occasionally she, of the sonnets, into the multiple voices and interactions of a dramatic structure. The lovers hardly ever meet, apart from the last scene. Each twosome comes together in two scenes, but even then their contacts are often perfunctory. There is nothing like Romeo and Juliet's minds meshing in a sonnet, nor like the formalised intimacy of the couples and cross-pairings in Love's Labour's Lost and Midsummer Night's Dream. Lovers appear apart, talking about their love, and paradoxically, Valentine and Sylvia meet more in his banishment speech than in any actual co-presence on stage. The same is true for the two friends. Their relationship is most alive and meaningful in Proteus's soliloquy in Act Two. And on that note, and with the clowns fresh in our mind, it's time for me to put on my detective hat. Firstly, I want to know if this was the first play Shakespeare wrote, and I will begin by saying that I do not think that it was the first play Shakespeare got performed. Earliest record of the production is 139 years after its publication, but we know, thanks to Francis Mears, that it was at least performed before 1598, or during 1598, I should say. I'm going to suggest that it was performed between 1593 and 1595, but written perhaps in the late 1580s, or at least part of it was. I'm going to remind you of a few clues we've already observed. I feel like Poirot if he solved a murder 400 years late. Here are the facts we've heard so far. The character of Launce seems tacked on, as if he was inserted into the play. We don't know that Shakespeare wrote his sonnets before the plays, but it seems likely, and there are similarities between this play and the sonnets, as we've seen courtesy of Ingestina Eubank. Kathleen Campbell, who really is the Poirot here, not me, adds weight to the argument that Launce might have been a late addition by pointing out that Will Kemp joined the Lord Chamberlain's company in about 1593. She suggests that Kemp may have come up with much of Launce's lines or collaborated with Shakespeare. I would lean towards collaboration, because while some of Launce's jokes seem off the cuff, they're in ways too writerly for a rogue performer going off script. Harold F. Brooks explains this by saying that, quote, from Launce's entry, the relationship between the clown episodes and the leading themes of love and friendship becomes simpler to describe, for it rests quite evidently throughout on a principle of comic parallelism. One parallel particularly noticeable is that between Proteus and Launce's dog, Crab. As Launce himself says, quote, oh, it is a foul thing when a cur cannot keep himself in all companies. Given that this is exactly what Proteus can't do either, it seems like either the work of a writer or a remarkably on-script dog. There is little argument that Launce would have been Kemp's role. Kemp's characters are only loosely attached to the plots of their plays and are regularly missing from the final scenes, presumably to allow the actor time to prepare for the jig that would follow the performance. Kemp was a large man and his characters were often physically solid and slow-moving. Back to Kathleen Campbell, who points out that the theatres were closed for half of 1592 and much of 1593 due to plague. When they reopened, Shakespeare may have had to get something ready quickly. When he did so, they would be performed at Newington Butts, this is before the famous Globe, by which the audience had to get by ferry. 
This might account for those, that confusion of references to sea and land travel, as Shakespeare was known to play up to rowdy audiences by throwing in a few local references. Think of it like a pantomime, ostensibly set up a beanstalk that throws in a reference to the town it's performing in. Makes sense to the audience, and makes no sense to the reader years later. So when the actor playing Valentine said he was going to travel by sea, he was saying so on the bank of the Thames. Visually, it would have made sense. So here's the theory, then. Shakespeare has an idea for lampooning Italianate ideals about masculine friendship and proving the strength and victory of romantic love. He has the Julia as a page boy story from Montemayor, apologies for pronunciation, and the Proteus-Valentine friendship taken from Thomas Eliot in The Governor. But his play isn't dramatic enough, or it lacks mass appeal. Maybe he doesn't finish it, maybe it's set in London so the Italy bashing isn't quite as pronounced, which would be another reason perhaps for the confused sea travel references. So he shelves it. Cracks on with Taming of the Shrew, Comedy of Errors, Henry VI. Then the play comes, the theatres close, and Shakespeare goes back to writing sonnets or performing with companies outside of London. When they reopen, Will Kemp joins Shakespeare's company and they go through his back catalogue. Collaborating on the character of Launce, maybe Shakespeare makes a few tweaks to the script, and ta-da, Two Gentlemen of Verona is put on. So is it his first play? If this is true, yes, kind of, and also kind of not. So not exactly a Poirot-like conclusion. It is fitting that the subject of this first podcast contains such an enthusiasm for reading. I will be thy beadsman, says Proteus, Valentine's reply, and on a love book pray for my success. Eubank has pointed out that perhaps the two gentlemen of Verona is that rare thing in a Shakespeare's work, where the sense of life is greater in the reading than in the watching of it. Oh, how this spring of love resembleth the uncertain glory of an April day which now shows all the beauty of the sun, and by and by a cloud takes all away. James P. Lasardi responds to these lines of Proteus by saying that they, quote, might serve as an epigraph for the two gentlemen of Verona. The play is all April, the work of an April playwright about people in the April of life. But its uncertain glory is still glory, and it deserves to be treated with the kind of lyrical energy and imagination that suffuse it.